controle. For those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Stuart Sauer, I'm the lead pastor. It's great to, uh, to be starting off this uh, series with you this morning. I'm glad you've got maps. Thank you, Matthew, for all your work in, uh, in putting that together. Uh, they should be good uh, use for us um, as we travel along. So I'm uh, quite excited traveling on. Yes, see, Exodus, we're already in the theme. That's very good. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and, uh, and we'll start. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this book. I pray, Father, that it might live in our hearts uh, as we open your word this morning. Uh, that by your Holy Spirit you'd challenge and convict us and that you'd change us, Father, by this ancient word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Exodus, uh, I'm not sure when the last time you read it was. If you haven't read it recently, uh, our Bible reading plan that we're doing together starts in Exodus today, which is really great. So we would love to have you read along a chapter a day with us um, over the, uh, the course of the next what is it, 40 days, I think, a chapter a day. So that would be an exciting journey. So if you've never read through Exodus, join us, try a chapter a day, uh, and uh, I think you'll find it really engaging um, at various points, quite challenging. So first question, we're going we're gonna to get uh, a bunch of context for this book. So we're going to spend 10 weeks in it. So rather than just going, here's a sermon on it, what I want you to uh, get today is some space to understand what's the world of Exodus like uh, Matthew's giving you the geography of, uh, of the place, and I want to give you something about uh, the world that it happened in uh, and some of the big themes that we'll be exploring over those uh, 10 weeks uh, before jumping into that specific passage that we've, uh, we've just had read. So uh, first uh, thing to think, when, when did all this happen? When did it take place? Uh, it's actually harder to say than you think, uh, so uh, lots of people debate this backwards and forwards. Um, uh, in essence, the best guess that we have uh, is it happened during the time of Ramses II, uh, who is pharaoh over <coughs> Egypt. Uh, the reason we say it's, uh, it's difficult to know exactly, um, at one level you read the Exodus and you go, man, this must be written up in hieroglyphics somewhere in Egypt. We've got to dig that thing up and know that it's true and historical and biblical. That makes sense at some level. Until you think a little bit longer. What's the story? The story is the people you had as slaves overturned your gods and left. Is that the one you want to memorialise next to your name as king? Is that the thing that you'd like to have on the billboard? Here's the king and here's how I lost significantly. So at some level, um, we shouldn't be too surprised that there's not yet been a whole lot of hieroglyphic evidence that says that the, Egyptians came out, uh, the Israelites came out of Egypt. Uh, but we have information in here that aligns with things that we find in the Bible. And so uh, they built the cities of um, uh, Pitom and Ramses. All right, that sounds all right, doesn't it? King Ramses II? We'll, we'll take that. Uh, so this is Ramses as he would like to be remembered. Uh, you know, it's 60 feet high, and uh, this is Ramses as he's actually preserved today. How incredible is this? That is the bloke who ruled... 3,000 years ago. When did this take place? It took place about, thereabouts, about 1250 BC. And that literally is the face and body of the guy who was Pharaoh Ramses II. Because they preserved their bodies. I just think this is incredible. Um, and because I've got so much to say this morning, I won't tell you the story about him travelling to France on a jet, but you can ask me about that later. Uh, so about, about 1250 uh, BC is when we are. 
So who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Exodus? Does anyone tell us? Anyone want to just have a go? Aaron? It wasn't Aaron? Sorry? Moses, yes, absolutely, it was Moses. So uh, we're going to meet Moses uh, very much over the course of this um, over the course of this series. Uh, and Moses is, in every way, an amazing figure. He's a quite extraordinary man, and it's he who wrote uh, the book of Exodus that we have um, that we have before us. I want to give you a little bit of an idea. Uh, I have an overview of the Bible that I use, uh, which is built on uh, pictures like this that overviews the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I just want to tell you briefly where it fits into that big picture uh, so that you can see. Uh, If we zoom in on that part uh, just there, uh, we believe that the book of Exodus was written by Moses after he'd received the Ten Commandments. So you can look at your map and go, yep, Mount Sinai. So after he received the Ten Commandments, after the people wandered in the desert, and just before they went into the Promised Land. The theory is a group of the Israelites went to the promised land and you remember they were unfaithful. They didn't go straight in and take the land. And God said, well, because of your unfaithfulness, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until everyone who is of decision-making age is dead. Heavy stuff. They wander around for 40 years until everyone's died and then they go back to take the land again under Joshua. It's hypothesised that Moses has written the book of Exodus for this second generation who are about to go into the promised land so that they might know their family story. This is your heritage, people. This is where you came from. This is your God. And so in some point between uh, when they left Egypt and when they went into the promised land, somewhere in that 39 years or so, Moses is, uh, we think, reasonably, uh, writing uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, So where does the book of Exodus fit in uh, in the Bible as a book? So that's the big overview. Um, How about as a book? Uh, Well, the Bible in the Old Testament, um, if you're a Jew, is divided up into three parts. Uh, The law, which is called the Torah. And just so you know, guys, I had the uh, school kids who meet here on a Friday afternoon sitting here, and they said Torah, they're learning Torah. So you guys are keeping up with the primary school kids here. Uh, So uh, the first five books are called the law. Uh, Then they have uh, a section called the prophets. And then lastly, the writings. So the Old Testament for the Jews is divided up into three parts. This first part, called the law, is also called the Pentateuch. This is is your high school education right here. This is now, we're going beyond the the primary school stuff. Pentateuch. Uh, Penta is how many? Five. So Pentagon, five. Uh, So uh, the Pentateuch is the five books that Moses wrote. The five books that Moses wrote. They are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So uh, Genesis, the beginnings, Exodus, uh, the leaving, Um, Leviticus, how to be clean before God, Numbers, lots of stuff about Numbers, Uh, and then uh, Deuteronomy, uh, the, the sermon that you have just before you start going into the Promised Land. Okay, so they're the five books, the Pentateuch, that Moses wrote. And the Pentateuch covers, in my big story, it covers up to here. So it comes from creation all the way through to just about to go into the Promised Land. That's what the Pentateuch covers. Okay, so how's the book laid out? Uh, Let's have a look at that. The book's basically, it's got 40 chapters in it, and it's basically laid out in two big parts. Two big parts. The first part is chapters 1 to 19, and that's basically all story. 
So I reckon for the first 19 days, you're going to be charging along. You're going to be loving it. It's going to be really engaging and awesome. Uh, The rest of it will be too, but it's a little bit different. After the halfway point, after we get to the middle point, um, it looks a little bit more uh, broken up, a little bit more bitsy. Uh, Let me unpack the bitsy bits. Uh, So what it looks like is this. Uh, You spend chapters 20 to 24 on laws. Then you talk about furniture. Now, Matthew has the most brilliant piece of uh, illustration for these parts of Exodus. So if there was ever to be anything dry about this, uh, Matthew has something that he'll bring in and it will blow you away as we understand the furniture, the makeup of this tent that that, uh, Matthew spoke about, the tabernacle. Okay, so we have uh, the furniture, then we have a little bit of narrative, and then we built the furniture that God told us to build, and then we have a little bit of narrative just to finish at the end. So that's the big picture. First half, getting to Mount Sinai, and then the second half, basically how we live with the awesome holy God that we meet at Mount Sinai. So uh, let's jump into the world of Exodus. What does it feel like? What does it feel like to be an Israelite at this time? What does it feel like? First thing to say is that uh, the head over Egypt is Pharaoh. And he's not just the prime minister. He's not a guy you get to elect or vote out on September the whatever, 7th. He's not kind of the passing. He is the absolute ruler over everything. And in fact, more and more, the, the pharaohs will push to deify themselves. What does that mean? I'm God, and not just am I God, and that's a good idea. You will worship me. You'll worship me as a God. Now, when you're meeting with someone, you don't have any negotiation rights with someone who believes that they're a God. Does that make sense? Uh, so we're in, we're in the control, the, under the oversight of someone who believes they are a living God. Next, we're in a country called Egypt. Now, for us today, we see Egypt in the news, don't we? And it's a place of strife and turmoil at the moment. And we probably should be praying for Egypt uh, because it really is uh, in a bad way. Uh, At this point, Egypt, though, was a central power in the ancient world. And they had a thought about themselves a little bit like China today. Okay, I don't know if you know much about China, but uh, in China's mindset... They are the middle kingdom. Have you heard this before? And what that basically means is we are more or less the centre of the universe. We're the most important people. And everything else should find its understanding in relationship to us being most important. Uh, For the Chinese, um, I heard this said, uh, they say we've just had a bad couple of centuries. Now, there's just a staggering mindset difference there, right? We've only been around as a country for a couple of centuries, right? But, and so we think we've had a bad year or a good year. They're saying, no, no, we are great and we've just had a bad couple of centuries. That's pretty mind-boggling, isn't it, really? So there's this sense of we are a power, we are on top of everything. And so for Pharaoh to be God and to be in Egypt is to be at the centre of everything that's important in the world. And they projected their power out to the countries around them and ruled. So if you're an Israelite from a family living there as slaves, your sense of power and identity and greatness was about this big. 
at every turn you would have been squashed and oppressed by the awesomeness and the power of Egypt around you. Uh, Secondly, how does it feel to be an Israelite in Egypt? Uh, Egypt is filled with gods. They've got gods for the sun, gods for the river. They've got gods for different times of year, for crops, for death, death, for life. They've got a whole plethora of gods. And you're there saying, no, 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 no. No, no, no. We're the people of God. And there's only how many gods? There's only one God. Well, in this ancient world, they were happy to pick up anybody's gods and kind of roll with them and kind of fold them in because the only gods that were worth hanging on to were gods that worked. And you guys are slaves. So how powerful do you think your gods are? How did it feel? It felt incredibly intimidating to be an Israelite in Egypt. Thirdly, it it must have been terrible because they were slaves. And our mindset is um, slavery might just be, you know, my boss works me like a slave. Yeah? Matthew, I hope that's not the case for you personally, but... uh, we can say, oh, you know, I'm working like a slave. It's a totally different mindset. You are a possession. Somebody owns you. You are a means of production. And so that sense of identity, again, is just completely squashed. You are nothing. You are a tool in our hand. How did they feel? Worthless, I would imagine. I think the other thing to contribute to how it feels to be an Israelite at this time is God spoke in the past. And then we've been here in Egypt for a long time as slaves. How long? Does anyone know how long they were in Egypt for, roughly? 400 and something years, 430 years, say. Now, God spoke to our ancestors... And we look at the Exodus and we go, oh, cool, yeah, God's going to save them. This is the classic thing we always do, even when we read the Gospels. We know the outcome. Jesus is going to come alive again. Why don't they just buck up when he gets crucified? You know, come on. We know the outcome, and so we kind of imply there's hope. They must be just hopeful. If you've been slaves under the most powerful nation on earth for 400 years, and you hadn't heard from God, and I have no evidence to suggest they had, How do you hang on? Has our God failed us? Must be the question. Must be the question for the Israelites. So that's what it feels like to be an Israelite. What are the big messages? What are the big things that Matthew and I will be unpacking over the course of this series? The first thing to note is the good news that God actually saves. So he does hear his people. He does not leave them. God will show himself to be a saviour God, powerful, awesome, mighty. In fact, this thing that we are doing in the Exodus is the defining picture of God for the rest of the whole Old Testament. Who is God? God is the God who led us out of Egypt. That's That's who he is. So God saves Secondly, God can be known. So if you're, in, if you're in Egypt and everyone's got their carved things on the wall, where's my God? How do I point to you and say, that's my God, I'm with him? We've got nothing. We've got nothing to show for it. And so God, we have the stories about God, but I've got nothing to point you to. 
until God chooses to reveal himself. And so the burning bush is the one that we're all looking forward to. And it's the way that God shows I can be known only when I reveal myself to you. God can be known, but only on his terms as he makes himself known. Thirdly, as he makes himself known, he says he's holy. And Matthew is very helpful in pointing it out before. Uh, I've got the, uh, the barrier up there. It says caution on it. Uh, this is what it means to meet a holy God. It's scary. It's frightening. And you can't just waltz in and go, hey, what up? In fact, they actually set up barricades around the mountain, as Matthew said, at Mount Sinai, so that they didn't do that. So you'll meet God as saviour. You'll meet him as he reveals himself, and he reveals himself to be holy, which is actually, on the whole, pretty scary. Fourthly, we'll see that God tells us how to live. How do you deal with this holy, awesome God? Well, he's going to give us laws that explain how do we treat him, how do we relate to him. We don't get to set our own agenda. He sets the agenda for us and how we're to come to him. Fifthly, there is a home. Um, If you've been in Egypt, if you've been in Egypt and you've only heard your great, 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 great grandmother's story, that there's a land out there somewhere promised for you, how, how could you really believe it? And yet they hung on to this promise and Exodus shows that there is a home prepared for the people of God. And that's because... Big idea. God is faithful. God is faithful to his covenant, his covenant promises to Abraham. And that's just going to be an awesome theme uh, that will run through uh, the book of Exodus. All right, well, let's see these links in practice. I want to show you how these big themes and the idea of the Pentateuch, five books that Moses wrote, come together to launch us into the book of Exodus. If you've got your Bible, it's open to Exodus chapter 1. Have you got two facing pages, or is one is Exodus 1 on this page? Have you got, can you see the back end of Genesis? You can? Very good. I want you to have a look with me at verse 24 of chapter 50 of Genesis. So it's just right next door to where you are with chapter 1. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. The end of Genesis tells us God will hear. God will hear, and he'll look after you. Have a listen to the start of Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and that generation died. So here's the thing. The end of Genesis says we're in Egypt and one day God will save us. The start of Exodus picks that story up and says, hey, this is the story of those people and that hope. Genesis and Exodus run together. So here's the line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had a bunch of sons and then they 
became 70 people. And that's the seed of the people of Israel that starts the book of Exodus. Cool. Let's dive in. Uh, I want us to um, I want us to just observe a couple of things along the way through uh, these first two chapters. And I want us to think about uh, who God is as he interacts with his people and how his people respond to, uh, to God. So the first thing to note in verse 10 here is that Pharaoh is worried about this bunch of slaves who came down as 70 people. He's worried about them. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, says in verse 10, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Now, that's very uh, prophetic, dare we say, isn't it? You guys got let in on the secret of how the book's going to finish. Um, and, but there it is, right here at the start, the worry of Pharaoh, these guys <laughs> might leave. They're actually a, um, do you know the turn of phrase, fifth column? Does that mean anything to you? Maybe if you're a war person. Yeah. You're all too peaceful and lovely. The idea is that you have, um, you have in your ranks people who are traitors. And they're an organisation of people who have alliances amongst themselves. And if we get invaded, they're going to be your enemy on the inside. Yeah? And then he's saying, look, we've got all these slaves. And they're from another country. They're not part of us. It's also worth saying the Egyptians, it seems, were quite racist. Difficult to say that. But the idea was, we're the people. We're the important people. And everyone else is down here somewhere. So we've got these slaves, these dogs amongst us. But I tell you what, they're going to be a problem. If someone comes from outside, they'll want to raise up. So we've got to do something about this problem. And they'll leave the country. So Pharaoh, as king god overall, just goes... We've got a problem here, and we've got to take care of it. So he says in verses uh, 16 and 17, come down with me. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the kings of Egypt uh, told them to do. They let the boys live. Uh, This is a... uh, My wife just smiled at me up. Uh, She's a midwife. I like midwives. They're fantastic. Uh, They're certainly absolutely the heroes in uh, in this story. Uh, It's worth observing. The only way you can make this request is how. We just get so into the mindset of the book that we never think these things through. Who gets to tell people you must kill these children? It can only be in the environment where you've got a king who's awesome and powerful and you've got slaves. I can't tell normal people, oh, by the way, kill your kids. You can't do that, can you? They must have been so little notice to the Egyptians. I go, oh, just kill them. Kill the boys. Why do you kill the boys, incidentally? Because they grow into soldiers. And if we just leave the women, who do they have to marry? Us. And the whole bloodline gets diluted and you don't have any people left. This is the terrible logic of uh, all the sort of uh, horrible things that happened in, uh, in Africa and in the Balkans as well, if you remember. Tragically. So this idea of killing the boys, it's as old as humankind's evil, basically. It's absolutely appalling. So what did the midwives do? Well, they, they could have gone, 
Yes, sir. In fact, they had every right to go, yes, sir, because they were just goods and shadows of the king. But what does it say? I, I think these verses are absolutely glorious. Have a look at me at verses 20 and 21. So God was kind to the midwives and increased, uh, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Uh, there's a little insight in there, I suspect, uh, that the midwives were uh, those who were barren, um, who ended up helping the, uh, the mothers to give birth. And because of God's incredible generosity, because of what? Why did he, he favour them so much? Because, it says up there, they feared God. Because they feared God, God gave them an incredible blessing and gave them children of their own because they spared his children. Now, it's worth saying, in a multi-God environment, where your God has clearly been losing for the last 400 years, to say, no, 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 we're going to put our God before all the gods of Egypt. We're going to fear him first. We're going to do what we believe is right and true above everything else, even possibly to the loss of our own lives. God says, I honour you. I honour you because you have honoured me. It's a, it's a beautiful, a beautiful picture. Now, I want you to see, I've missed this before. I've read Exodus a lot. I've missed this before. Have a look with me at verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Who's the program being rolled out to? Sorry? Egypt. The whole of Egypt. Now you have to help me enforce this rule. Now, as we wonder about the judgment that comes on Egypt, right? I have. We'll get to it over the coming weeks. I've wondered about the judgment that comes over all of Egypt. And here we see Pharaoh rolling this program of genocide out to all his people. It's your job to, to start killing these, these boys, these Hebrew boys. That's appalling, isn't it? Please agree with me. It's appalling, isn't it? And Pharaoh draws them into the guilt of the death of the boys of Israel. The only way he can do that again is because he's king, unopposable. Well, then we get to this story, don't we? The story that, if you know anything at all about Exodus, you know this story, don't you? Um, and I just thought, I, I, think, um, I think sometimes we read it and we think, wow, uh, wasn't Moses lucky, right? Um, I want to back that up a little bit. It doesn't say in the text, but I just want to think with you for a second. I actually think Moses' mum is quite clever. I don't think she's just, ah, um, oh, chuck it in the water, see what happens. Oh, I don't think it's like that at all. Um, first of all, she, she has a baby boy, um, and uh, it says uh, she saw that he was fine looking or something like that. And uh, I'm like, well, what happens if he was an ugly boy? But that's, that's beside the point. But, uh, uh, and she couldn't keep him hidden after three months. I don't know why, but I guess he starts to get a little bit bigger and makes a lot more noise and it becomes a bit more problematic. Anyway, at that point she decides, uh, I'm in big trouble because now all of Egypt is looking out for young boys, aren't they? So what are we going to do? Well, I'm going to build a reed boat thing. We could call it an ark. We're going to build a, a reed boat thing. We're going to put tar on the outside. We're going to put it in. Now, I don't reckon that she just sets it off and goes, oh, well, what, what do you know? Because Pharaoh's daughter comes and baths there. Now, I don't reckon Pharaoh's daughter just 
randomly picked spots on the Nile to go for a swim. I reckon she had the same spot pretty much every day because she didn't like to walk very far, would be my guess, from her palace. So here's the thing. Moses' mum knows where... All speculation, but just go with me. Um, knows where um, Pharaoh's uh, daughter comes in, right? Gets the boat, pushes it into the reeds. Now, again, I, I wouldn't be surprised if she placed it in the reeds right just on the edge where Pharaoh's daughter comes down, right? And then someone goes, oh, look what we found. And what's in it? A beautiful-looking baby boy crying. Now, I don't care what the Pharaoh's edict is. Now, oh, the other thing I read, uh, it's his um, uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Um, Apparently, he had 200 wives. 200, just get that number again, 200 wives. Now, if you're his daughter, right, how far up the chain to daddy's love and affection do you reckon you are? Right, now, I'm his daughter, number... 400 and something, and I see a beautiful baby in the water. Now, maybe I don't like Daddy. Maybe I love Daddy, but I just I forget it because I'm looking at a beautiful baby. But the point is, I'm not going to kill this beautiful baby that's somehow wrapped up and cared for that seems like it's just come to me by happenstance. And then what happens? Well, the baby gets drawn out, and his sister, who's watching, runs up helpfully and says, oh, um, would you like some help with that baby that's there? Yeah, now I don't reckon that just happens by accident either. Okay, daughter, just stand in the reeds. When she picks it up, if she could run over. So she runs over. Oh, can we help out? And uh, she says, would you like someone to help bring up this baby? Yes, yes I would. Oh, well, um, I've got someone in mind. Back to mum. And it says actually here that she paid for it or something like that. Um, And so he gets brought up by his mum, paid for by the thing, protected by the royal family. And then handed back to them to be protected in the royal family so he won't be killed. I don't think it's happenstance that this happens. And I think Moses' mum is a very wise woman. That's what I reckon. Um, So Moses then is an Israelite. And I believe his mum sat him on her lap, all speculation, sang him the songs about who God was, told him the promises of God's people as he grew up, and then he went to Pharaoh's house and learned all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. Now, if that's the case, isn't Moses an incredibly unique person? He's uniquely equipped in God's economy for this task of being the saviour. Well, let's see how that works out for him. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. So one day, after Moses had grown up, He went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. Now, two things to note. He knows they are his own people, right? So he wasn't brainwashed. He knew his identity. That's intriguing, isn't it? Um, He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So the, the, the distinction, I'm not an Egyptian, but you're beating my people. See that distinction there? Um, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, I reckon this is Moses saying, I have a special job to do. I have this messianic complex. I'm the saviour guy. And he comes to save and he thinks that should work out really well. Uh, the next day, he goes to separate some fighting uh, Hebrews and they say this to him at 2.14. The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? This is his own people speaking. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what, I must have done, what I've done must have become known. 
Now, I reckon this is beautifully ironic. Who made him ruler over and judge over the people of Israel? God eventually. Is it today? It's not today, Moses. You're ahead of God's program and you are making yourself a stench to your own people and to the Israelites. He goes, crikey, they must know I've killed him. I'm out of here. And so Moses has his own exodus. There you go. He leaves Egypt. He takes off. Uh, he's, uh, he's sitting by a well far, far away in far, far away land. In fact, Matt, you said that uh, he's down in, uh, near Mount Sinai, isn't he? Horeb. Yeah. Yep. So he's down that neck of the woods, down the bottom of your map. Um, and, and some girls uh, come out to water their, their flocks. Uh, then we see in uh, 2, 18 and 19. Uh, the girls returned to rule their father and uh, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Uh, what's the point here? First of all, uh, the girls identify him as an Israelite, as an Egyptian. So you better believe that he was schooled like an Egyptian, he looked like an he walked like an Egyptian. Very good, okay. Uh, second thing to notice, right? Uh, these, girls, these girls are vulnerable. There's seven girls who've got a, a group of animals and they get attacked by shepherds. Now, Moses sits back and goes, suffer. No. What's he got inside him, deep inside him? What's, what's, he's got this messianic complex. He's got this saviour complex. And so he dives in and goes, I'm going to rescue you girls. He chases off the shepherds and saves the girls, waters their flocks and sends them home. What are we finding out about Moses? He is a justice guy. And he is passionate to save the oppressed. That's just a great little character note, isn't it? He gets married up. And, uh, and he has a child, a child that's named uh, Woe is me, I'm a long way away from home. More or less, I'm transliterating for you. Um, and he ends up being outside of Egypt, thinking God's plan has failed. I am on the outer reaches of the galaxy, far, far away. I'm a murderer. I'm old. I will never be of use. During that long period, the king of Egypt died, it says in verse 23. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the first time in 400 years, we believe, that God has specifically Take an interest. He has listened, watched, heard, and is concerned about his people. And that sets us up for what's just about to unfold. Notice what he remembers. His covenant. The promise made all those years ago to Abraham. So where does this ancient story... We're set up, aren't we? I mean, we're, we're ready to go. He's an old bloke, but God is stirring. God is stirring. And he is about to do something mighty, and Matthew's going to bring us that message uh, next week. So I just want to think today, where does this story, just this little snippet that we've seen today, where does that challenge us? First thing, first challenge. What is your position in society? What's your position in society? Do you have a role where you can be of influence for God? Do you have a role where you can be of influence for God? At some level, the, the, the midwives were always doing a great job. They were always doing a great job. But they found themselves specifically at this point of decision. Will we choose to serve God or will we fold and go with the impressive, intimidating power of the world? 
Are you a teacher? Are you in business? Are you leading your family at home? How can you use the position that you have for God? Are you passing on the stories of God's covenant to your kids? Would we be the sort of people who would pass on God's faithfulness so that it would be remembered 400 years from now? Are you waiting for God to change your situation? Are you waiting for God to change your situation? Do you believe that he's given up on you? How much time will we give God before we'll judge him as uncaring? I am humbled and staggered that this group of people had to wait 400 years for God to show his hand to save his people. Now, God loved his people. He was being faithful to his promise. He was building a nation that he could lead out to take possession of the land. But none of them knew that at the time. Will we wait well, even as we feel the change of slavery? And lastly, have you wondered whether you can be useful to God? Have you sinned so badly that you think, I could not? be used by God. I want you to remember Moses is a murderer. Did you know that? He's a murderer. He's an old man. He feels like he's miles away from the action where God's at work. Do you feel you're left on the shelf that God couldn't possibly use you to do anything of worth? The overwhelming response from Exodus is... You're not on the used pile. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that God has good plans and purposes and can use and redeem even the most fallen because the answer lies in him, not in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's great to be standing on the, uh, on the doorstep of this great story as we prepare to see your incredible plan unfold. Father, it must have been so daunting for your people to have been waiting and longing and hoping and passing on stories of promise with so little to see. Father, we thank you for the wonderful and amazing hope we have in Jesus. We pray, Father, that we would not forget, that we would pass on the hope, the inheritance, the rescue that you've shown us in him. And I pray for all of us who feel that you may have passed us by, Father, that we might find usefulness in your hands. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Give you a chance to just have a break uh, for a second before we do uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, that's our.